I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. You can now hear us on LitHub Radio. I'm very excited to be part of the wonderful work that Literary Hub is doing, and they are now helping to sponsor this podcast. Mary Beth Keene is the author of Ask Again, Yes. It's a profoundly moving novel about two families in a suburban town. The friendship between their children, a tragedy that reverberates over four decades, and the power of forgiveness. Eleanor Henderson the author of The Wonderful 10,000 Saints says of Ask Again, Yes, Mary Beth Keene is at the height of her powers in this novel about the sacrifices we make when we choose to build a life with someone. In Ask Again, Yes, Mary Beth tells a story about the fragility of happiness, the violence lurking beneath everyday life, and ultimately the power of love. If you've ever loved someone beyond reason, you will love this wise, tender, and beautiful book. Mary Beth received her MFA from University of Virginia after graduating from Barnard. She was designated by the National Book Foundation as a five under 35 and was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship for Fiction. Her two previous books are The Walking People and Fever. Mary Beth, welcome to The Literary Life. Thank you very much for having me. You know, so my first encounter with Ask Again Yes came at that gathering of booksellers that you know about called the Winter Institute. It took place in January of this last year, and I read this really actually happened. Bookseller after bookseller after bookseller came up to me and said, this is a book you really <laughs> have to read. But what was more surprising was that publisher after publisher after publisher even publishers who are not your publisher yes. came up to me and said, this is a book you really have to read. They were all raving about your book, and uh, rightfully so. Um, the book has now, it 
came out and sort of came right out of the box onto the New York Times bestseller list, it seemed like. It was crazy. Yes, two two and a half weeks ago it came so, out. Yep. So tell us a little bit about Ask Again, yeah. So the story is about two families who end up living as next-door neighbors in a suburb of New York City, and the dads in each family are cops in the NYPD. And they're friendly, but they're not close friends. They're sort of bonded by their jobs. Um, but what happens is inside each house feels quite different. One is um, quite, you know, a happy chaos, like a normal family. The other one um, is a little bit more difficult. There's definitely definitely something dark sort of simmering in one of the houses. And it's really about the ways that their lives begin to intersect, mostly through the children. The boy in one house and the girl in the other house become really close friends. And I'm not giving anything away. I think a reader knows pretty quickly that um, they'll sort of be connected for the long haul. Um, but there's an incident that happens when those kids are in eighth grade and the families think they'll never see each other again. But of course they do. And the book is really about how you deal with childhood trauma, you know, many, many years after that trauma is supposedly over. And and if you ever really get past it at all. Yeah. I mean, you do that so powerfully and, and it's so true, uh, you know, in terms of all of us who have, I guess that's all of us who have experienced families and the inner workings of families, you know, on the outside, they seem one way, but on the inside, they seem very different. Of course. Yeah. Um, I read somewhere that you were contemplating writing uh, Fever, was a bit of a historical novel, yeah. as was your first novel, too, yeah. more or less. Yeah. The first um, novel people describe as historical. I don't I don't exactly see it that way, but I understand what people mean. Fever was for sure historical, yeah. yeah. And I, I read somewhere that you were contemplating writing a yes. third historical novel, but yeah. then you abandoned it yeah. for one reason or another. What was the impetus? I was that? just abandoning things left and right uh, for a little <laughs> while there. Uh yeah, I had a good idea. I still think it's not a bad idea, but it was as if my real life kept knocking on the door while I was trying to send myself into this other time period and these fictional characters. My, um, I don't mind saying that we have a long estrangement, family estrangement um, on my husband's side of the family that we kind of thought we were long past, but our kids got to an age where we started to have to explain it. Um, and then other things were happening. Friends were sort of dealing with addictions that had always been lurking at the door, but um, never seemed to be a problem until all of a sudden they were um, infidelity, marriages sort of crumbling that I thought were strong. All of these things were happening. And I think I started writing because I'm a writer and I wanted to find out what I thought about all of them. And then slowly um, I realized it could be a book. And I kind of put it, I guess, outside of myself to see it more clearly. And once you do that and start thinking of character and whatnot, and once I started to see them sort of move in space and time, I thought this could be a story that people might be interested in. So how did, how did, the, how did it come to you to be writing about police and police work in the way that you did? The police work, well, I knew there was going to be an incident of violence um, in the book. And I grew up in a town, sort of a working class suburb of New York City. Um, my dad was a sand hog. He wasn't a cop. But I grew up around a lot of cops. The dads of a lot of my friends were either NYPD or local PD. And it was something I just, I think I've always been sort of obsessed by. They were these nice, jolly men who coached us in all our sports and 
Um, but they wore guns under their shirts. And I think even as a kid, that really shocked me. And I thought, you know, what is Mr. So-and-so doing at work? If he has a gun, he probably has to use it. And yet here he is skimming his pool and, you know, floating in a big Dunkin' Donuts floater. So it didn't quite make sense to me. And I think I've always been thinking about that a little bit. And, and infused almost in all of your work is um, your Irish heritage as well. Yeah. Did that, did that have something to do with it as well? I mean, we associate, to a large extent, we often associate NYPD folks with the Irish to some I extent. I guess so, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I thought this was my first not-Irish book. <laughs> I really thought that was the case. Um, I think it was Nan Graham in an early meeting said, only Irish people deal with trauma like this. Uh, and so, of course, it's an Irish book. And I, I guess I understand that. But it was really important to me to, if it's an Irish book, to be sort of a post-Catholic Irish book, you know, to not have people at their rosaries and saying their prayers. And all. I just don't really identify with that at all. Um, but I, I guess they are, you know, Irish in that sense. Well, and and Irish, Jewish, Italian... People hold grudges. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of ethnic groups over the years have been identified as those who do that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think the way you tamp down your emotions, you know, just get on with it, deal with it. You're not dead. So there's nothing to complain about, you know, is really an attitude that I grew up with. And a part of me really stands by that. And then the other part of me doesn't. And so that conflict, I think, is what creates fiction. Well, without getting without getting into the specifics, because this I think is your most personal novel that you've written, but without getting into specifics of your own, too specific of your own life, talk about the poisonous nature of estrangement, and and how that has affected not only the book but has affected your family in any way. I think you know estrangement and addiction kind of um, are similar to me in that nobody sees it coming. I don't think anybody says, I'm never going to speak to my son again, or I'm never going to speak to my uncle or whoever it is. It happens day by day and inch by inch until next thing, five years have gone by and 10 years and 20, and then somebody's dead. You know, And I, I don't think people who are estranged sometimes even realize that is what they're in. You know, The same thing with addiction, um, in my observation, is people just sort of head there inch by inch and day by day until it's full blown. And then, you know, here you have a problem. But estrangement, you know, I, I don't know what, I don't think fiction is really meant to, you know, teach a lesson. But I think that the question I had when I was writing this book is whether we all still mean something to one another, even if we're not in each other's lives. Does the person who made you still matter? even if you've not spoken to that person in 25 years, you know, maybe your entire adulthood, they're still the person who made you. And so I had to think about what all of that meant and how it might mean different things to different people. Well, it could also mean that it's a good thing you're apart, even though they mean something to you and that they made you, that if you had, if you had to interact for all those 25 years, it could have destroyed you as yeah, well. I think so. And I think the whole culture, there is you know, of course, a lot of discussion of forgiveness and moving on and family harmony and getting over things. And I, I agree with all that when it's possible. 
But I think there are times when it's just not possible. And for those people, I, I think they need to be told sometimes it's okay to be sort of marking your own path and not attached to toxic or poisonous people anymore. And there is not really a lot of talk about that. It's mostly about forgiveness and getting together, you know, and no, things I, like I that. I think you've hit on something. I think it's extremely important to say that just because someone is in your family or someone is very close to you, and if they are extremely toxic, cutting them out might be the best thing. Right. It's like a bad marriage. It's right. like separating from a bad marriage exactly. in a sense. It might be the healthiest thing to do. Right. And I, and I think I think this book speaks to that. I mean, you speak about second chances. It's about family secrets. It's about yeah. all these things that bubble beneath the surface. And they're well. going to emerge eventually, I, in my view, you know, whether it's now or later, um, you might as well face them. Well, you know, and, and you mentioned her, you mentioned Nan Graham. Mm -hmm. And when I read in your acknowledgments about how you're happy to be back at Scribner, uh, other than the fact that almost everyone involved with this book is Irish, how does it, yeah. what does it mean to be back at Scribner for you? Um, it means everything. I mean, I, I think I don't like anyone to see my work before it's finished. I know some people do. They sell books on three chapters or on an idea, but I don't. So I was really in the dark with this book for a very long time. I threw it out twice. Um, and I, I just don't like to have input too early. So when it was done, I really didn't know what it was or how it would go over. Um, my agent liked it eventually, but he really didn't like it for a while. Um, yeah, he had a, an important role. That's Chris. Chris yeah, Calhoun. Chris Calhoun. Yeah. And he, I think he knew that I was emotionally sort of depleted. And and I think in this particular book, the the sum equals more than the parts. And so he'd seen 50 pages or 100 pages. Um, but I knew the end was, was where it was all going to come together. But anyway, when I finally got to the end, I didn't know what it was or how it would go over. And so it meant a lot that that they were so receptive and enthusiastic about it because I think they did a great job with Fever. I really liked everyone there. I wanted a chance to be there again. Um, and so it was wonderful and it's well, turned out great. You know, Nan and, and the whole Kara crew. Watson. Kara Watson. Has been who a did critical the, part. She did the heavy lifting. Yeah, this, exactly. Right? Yeah. The whole, the, you know, everyone there. I mean, there's, I don't know if you met Wendy Sheenan. Yes. Who, I mean, who Wendy. I call mom. She, you can ask, <laughs> I, we did this pre-pub tour and uh, with a couple of other Simon and Schuster writers, and she would have us check in with her when we landed and hailed a cab, so I started calling her mom. Well, the, for those of you listening, I mean, part of the literary life when you have a novel coming out is what happens prior to that novel yeah. coming out, and, and most people don't realize that there's an entire, it does take a village, oh gosh, right? Yeah. You're selling this thing for a year before it even comes out. Right. Yeah. You're, 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 yeah. The first order of business is to get booksellers excited. Yeah. And the second order of business is to be able to spread the word that it's coming, it's coming. And then finally it gets released. So how do you feel? I mean, I, I've interviewed a number of authors, uh, really wonderful authors, uh, fantastic authors. And I know so many over so many years who work so hard to do a book, it comes out and it doesn't resonate the way yeah. your book that did. And I know there's a bit of everything involved. Your book is marvelous. But how does it feel to have this book and have everyone reacting the way they've been reacting? To I it? mean, it's 
I don't know how to describe it. It feels incredibly good. I think partly because it came as such a surprise. I think my expectations were so low. Any writer knows that when you go out with a new book, it's sort of being like called to the principal's office. Like, well, this was a great book, but you know, you sold five copies of your last book. And so this, and I'm like, oh gosh, this is going to be the same thing. But I remember one of the first emails in-house at Simon & Schuster, they have all their different parts moving in between the factories and whatever else, you know, how they get their themselves functioning. And emails were starting to come in. I think the very first one said, is it me or is this a good book? You know, and then another one said something the same way. Is it me or actually is this quite good? You know, and everyone seems surprised reluctantly. And then this sort of like thing built. And so it's been extraordinary because like I said, I was writing sort of in the dark and I like I like when I read what Kara said about the first time Nan read it. Mm -hmm. What did she say? That she was in tears. That Nan finished it in tears. I can't imagine Nan in tears that often, so that feels pretty good. No, it must be. I'd like to keep making her cry through the rest (laughs) of my career. (laughs) Let's hope that happens. Yes. Um, You know, tell me. You know, you've you you know you read Barnard. You then. We're in the MFA program at University of Virginia, which has some remarkable, remarkable uh, writers that mm-hmm. I'm sure that you studied with. Tell me about some of the influences on you. I know that Mary Gordon was one of the She was a huge influence on me, not just... Was she at Barnard? Or was she, she was at Barnard, yeah. and she's still sort of the keystone of the department there. Um, her influence on me was not just her writing, but her just whole her person. Um She's so lovely, isn't she? I wrote an essay about this that's going to hopefully come out soon. But when I went to Barnard, I didn't know what to read. I didn't know anything. My parents were not readers. And she really kind of took me under her wing and told me, I think she saw that I was a little bit lost. Um, I remember someone in seminar mentioning The Bell Jar as if everyone had read it. And I thought I'd missed something on the syllabus. I'd never heard of it. So it wasn't just that I hadn't, read what other people had read. I actually hadn't heard of those things either. And she kind of recognized that. And I remember her telling me, Young, you're you're a good writer, but you need to read. And she kind of helped me pick what would resonate with me. Maybe, you know, I was picking the wrong things and and that helped a lot. So so let's go back a little bit further. So you came from a household, a house where there wasn't a lot of reading, but you were clear but you were a reader. Yes. And how did that happen? So I think my parent, my parents are Irish born. They came to New York in the late sixties. Um, I think they knew that you were supposed to read. A child was supposed to read to do well in, in the U S and to do well in school. And so we would go to the library a lot, but I never saw books, um, in my house. You, my mother might have like a Maeve Binchy, you know, sort of earmarked, um, and work on it for a long time. We did get the reader's digest, which I would read the drama in real life section um, religiously. Everyone was always like going out into the woods with a chainsaw and, you know, somehow chopping off their arms. They had to make it out in time. But that, and I would look forward to that coming, but it didn't come that often. But I would go to the library. I had no sense of what was a classic and what wasn't. So I'd read everything. Um, and we weren't allowed to watch TV. So that was a big, we were bored basically. So, we so your parents 
told you weren't allowed to watch TV, but they took you to the library. Yeah, drop and, us off. And yeah. that that was the the impetus yes. that got you yes. started into this. Yeah. And when did you know that you could be a writer? Or when did you think about being a writer? You know, I liked writing really young. My mom said I used to write. I'd have her write because I couldn't write fast enough for, I guess, whatever I was thinking about. And then she would read it back to me. But I really didn't know a person could be a writer until I met Mary Gordon. Um, and her background was not so dissimilar from mine. And you were an undergraduate. I was an undergraduate, yeah. Were you an English major? I was an English major with a writing concentration. I was a sophomore. She um, accepted me into her workshop, even though she usually only accepted seniors. And she let me in, and I thought, oh, gosh, I don't know whether I'm getting reprimanded or if this is an honor. Um, but once I learned more about her own her background, I thought, well, that's not – she's not from such fancy stuff, you know, like maybe I can do this too. And it, it was, that was all the difference really, you know? So, so you were very, you were really fortunate to have that mentor oh, yeah. Yeah. who was able to sort of guide you to where you are today yeah. in a sense. And, and who built, who, who did anyone have that role at the University of Virginia? Uh, was there any writer there that you, that really understood your work or that you really, felt a bond with there well by the time i got to virginia i'd been working in publishing for a little while virginia the the best so i worked with um john casey pretty closely i love john casey's work i mean i love john casey i don't know him as a person but i also really really like him as a person he's yeah you know he's fallen on some um difficult times i think um but I have to What's say, the novel? The novel about building a boat. Spartina. He, yeah, Spartina yeah, it's great. to me yeah. was. It bothers me when people say that's a man's book. No, um, it's an amazing book. But a lot of people do say that. It's uh it's an amazing book. Half Life of Happiness is a yeah. great book. Um Was Ann Beattie there? Ann Beattie were... was there. Yeah. They all had their different things. Chris Tillman was all about structure, you know, and plotting. Um, John was so much about the classics. And um was more about character, I think, and sort of point of view and these technical things, but also she wanted to be moved. Deborah Eisenberg was all about the sentence. Each We could spend a two-hour workshop on a single sentence um, and be ready to die at the end, <laughs> but it helped a lot. So, But I think the most valuable thing about going to an MFA program like Virginia's was I learned to take myself seriously. I think I was apologizing in New York for wanting to be a writer because everyone wanted to be. But there I thought, they let me in. There's only seven people in this thing. They had 500 applicants. I must not be that bad. Are you in touch with some of the other students? Yeah, and that's what I was... Who were some of the other writers? So Eleanor Henderson was in my class. Brendan Matthews, Mm -hmm. um, Nick Taylor. Uh, I'm going to leave someone out and they'll kill me. Charles McLeod, Gosha Glinska. And Anna Shearer, and they're all still writing, I believe. Um, but it's been nice to be able to still exchange work with each other and really, really valuable. And I think because we met on this basis of criticizing each other, we're still very comfortable doing that. Well, you, you <laughs> stood on some very sturdy shoulders when, with those names of people that were your mentors. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, and they were extraordinary. I have to, I have to say that when I read this, it reminded me somewhat it's not exactly the same, obviously, but did you read Light Years Ever by James Salter? No. Do you know that book at no. all? It's something it's the story of a marriage. Okay. From beginning to the end. And it's something that I started thinking of. And then I started thinking of the great Irish writers mm-hmm. that I always loved uh reading. 
Are any of those folks people that you read now or oh, that yeah. you went back to? Um, William Trevor was a huge influence on me, especially when it comes to implicating the reader in the story, which is something I couldn't put my finger on for a long time. You know, what makes me like a book? What makes me dislike a book? I don't like being told how to feel ever. And he never does tell a reader how to feel, but you still feel it. Say that again. Implicating the so reader. So implicating the reader in I the story. That. So I think, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think most readers don't like to be told, now here's your cue to be sad. Here's right. your cue. But if you involve the reader and you have them sometimes even rooting for the wrong thing, um, then you've implicated them in the story. And they're all, they're, the character's guilt becomes the reader's guilt. The character's triumph becomes the reader's triumph. And he, I think once I read his stories over and over and over and started to see how they were put together he probably has had the most influence on um on my work but a person like Roddy Doyle um was yeah. it just because you know he's he's Irish and he's talking about selling you know the chipper like you know the french fries out of a van in Ireland and everyone's like fuck you fuck that like i like oh these are my people i can <laughs> i can say that not everyone has to be posh in a book um and they're incredibly moving stories um Edna O'Brien, of course, oh, yeah, Maeve Brennan, Seamus Heaney is a huge influence. I try to read a little bit of his work every writing day. Um, but yeah, the Irish greats. Yeah, no, Maeve Brennan is such an interesting story as well. Yeah. Her personal story, too. Right. About how she ended up living in the New Yorker. <laughs> and Mary Gordon told us that story as undergrads right. and it stuck with me. So all I, roads Her lead. novellas are terrific, I think. Yes. As well. Yes. Well, the good fortune, your literary good fortune just keeps. Building. I mean, a, a play that I saw about two or three years ago that I loved. It was one of my favorite plays for a long time, these last two or three years. And I was glad to see it open on Broadway was The Ferryman. Oh. Another movie that I saw when it came out, when it first came out, I was mesmerized by, and that's American Beauty. Oh, I know where so this is going. So <laughs> it's kind of amazing to me that the producers of yeah. those two incredible works of art uh, and how brilliant it is that they've chosen to option this for a film. I know. How do you feel about that? So I think they're talking a limited miniseries. Um, which makes good which sense, I th too. It even sounds better to me because they'll have more time. But yeah, it's like a dream come true to see this team come together. They seem very, very serious about it. And they, um, I met with Bruce, and he clearly loves the book and understands it really well. Um, and also for someone whose background is so different from mine, to say, you know, I so identified with this book was so surreal and moving, you know, so it was, it was great. So I hope. Do you want to be involved in it? Or do you think you'll be part of the writing room or you get involved in any of it? That part is a little bit, we're still talking about that. Um, I, I know that they are hiring a writer. I don't feel comfortable writing for TV or film. I don't have any experience. And I think it's such a different animal. And they're so good at what they do that I think they will find someone who's also really good at at this. But I think um, they said that I would, you know, consult in some way or um, I will be involved, but I don't want to be the main writer of this. Um, I don't, I feel like I'd need more practice writing for film and TV. Well, what I just was thinking about was that when I saw The Ferryman in London and I was wondering, how will that translate here in the United States? I mean, will it, will it do that? And then I think in reverse, I think Ask Again Yes would translate very well in Europe. 
would do oh. very well in England, would do so. very well in Ireland. And I think this team that you've put together, I think, will help globalize this whole story. I, I hope think. so. Yeah, well, this because, launches in Ireland in August and England. Oh, it does. Yeah, well, t- will you go over? Yeah, I'm going to go over there in August. Yeah, oh, that's so exciting. Yeah, I know it's crazy. This is uh, it's, my my kids are not impressed, but I'm how happy. old are your kids? They're eight and ten. Too young to be impressed. They definitely don't care about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was you know you talked about before about the uh, small suburb of New York City you grew up in what was which one was it's it? it's called Pearl River I actually live there again oh you're living there now. yeah so we l- moved away for about 15 years uh when I was single and then when I first got married we lived in central Virginia and then in Philadelphia and then when I was expecting my second son the house next door to the one I grew up in came up for sale so I remember standing on the sidewalk <laughs> and crying and thinking, I need this house. And to walk into it was like from 1961. I don't think they had changed one linoleum tile in that place. Um, and my mother still lives next door. So this was clearly a, a decision made in um, while pregnant. Uh, but it's been really fun. The kids run back and forth. You know, if they can smell grandma's barbecue going, like, we're just going over for a visit, you know, and they check out what's on offer over oh, there. God, it's, yeah, so so it's great, great to have that sense of family. Yeah. So rich and so deep and mm-hmm. so close. We always say it's better than living across the street from each other because then we'd be watching. But side by side, we really don't pay any attention to what's going on. Yeah. That's great. So what's so next? Nice. Next is uh, I have something cooking. It's it's a little too early to talk about, but it is contemporary. Um, but... I'm not really getting a lot of time to work on it right now. So I sort of have a hard stop in yeah. my mind. And you won't for a while. I yeah. Think. You're, you're touring now. I'm touring. Yeah. And I'm sure you're, you're going to go over to Ireland and England and yeah. then there'll be the paperback and that'll be a tour yeah. hopefully. The other thing is you're now beginning to see independent bookstores from the inside out. Yeah. Tell me what that world has meant to you. I can't believe it took three books to really understand I think the power of independent bookstores and how they work. Albuquerque Winter Institute taught me a lot about that. Um, how you all work together and listen to each other's recommendations. And I think that I've met probably some of the best readers, the sharpest readers in the world in the last six months. Um, and that's something I think a lot of writers don't know how all of this works, you know, how, um, you know, some stores influence the other and orders get put in and word spread and the Indie Next list and all of that stuff. Um, but it's been an extraordinary education. I'm really glad to have learned all of that. No, and I'm glad you got to taste it because oh, yeah. it's a it's a fabulous part of the literary world mm-hmm. that the, the kind of congenial um, atmosphere that booksellers have with one another. I mean, now you can be in any city basically and you know if there's an independent bookstore, right. you'll have a friend right. in that city. And everyone seems, I mean, it sounds so hokey, but everyone seems to work to raise each other up. You know, if, um, right, aren't independent bookstores doing really well? Right yeah, now? there's like a renaissance. There's a renaissance yeah. going on. And what you mentioned earlier about people from other publishing houses reading the book, um, which did happen in Winter Institute, I did not know that that happened. So in addition to all their own books, they're reading other things that are coming out and really feel, it seems genuinely excited for other companies, you know, and they just seem to be fans of, of literature and fiction. Well, we, we realize, I think most of us and you too, we realize that this literary life that we all belong to is a very narrow 
part of the world. And if it's to survive, we all have to put our shoulder to the wheel right. and build each other up one way or another and identify things that are really good that will help everybody. Yeah. Because your book will get people into bookstores and they may buy other books by other publishers as well, I think. I don't think there's a model for this in business school, though. I think, <laughs> no. you know. I, well, first of all, anybody contemplating getting into the book business would not be going to business right, school anyway, <laughs> yeah. typically, or they would be, be discouraged from doing it. What do you, Are you able to read while you're now on tour? Is this yeah, a good I, time for reading? I try to read, especially on planes. I just finished this afternoon uh, The Tenth Muse by Catherine Chung, and I found myself getting uh, really choked up in flight, um, and I thought that was really, really good. I just did an event with Alex Olin. Um, mm. She wrote Dual Citizens, which right. I really enjoyed. Um, and that's been really nice because sometimes, you know, you do an event you read the book, but those two books blew me away. Um, I have some on the to be read pile that I haven't gotten to yet. Um, I think next up is wild game by Adrian Brodeur. Uh -huh. Um, a lot of people know, and I'm really looking forward to her memoir. Um, and a couple of things I have to blurb that aren't coming out for a while, um, Anna Solomon, whose work, Leaving Lucy Pear, I loved, and she has a new book coming out next year. I'm also going to read probably as soon as I get home. Well, it's nice that you're doing that, and nice that you'll pay it forward by blurbing other people. I mean, well. I really only blurb if I really love it, because otherwise sure. I just think it doesn't work. Right. Um, but I've already gotten a glimpse, and I, I just know that this is going to be good stuff. Yeah. Mary Beth, it's been amazing having you on here. I wonder if you'd read a little something. Sure. From Ask Again, Yes. Okay, I'm going to read from the prologue, which is uh, July 1973. Francis Gleason, tall and thin in his powder blue policeman's uniform, stepped out of the sun and into the shadow of the stocky stone building that was the station house of the 41st precinct. A pair of pantyhose had been hung to dry on a fourth-floor fire escape near 167th, and while he waited for another rookie, a cop named Stanhope, Francis noted the perfect stillness of those gossamer legs, the delicate curve where the heel was meant to be. Another building had burned the night before, and Francis figured it was now like so many others in the 4-1, nothing left but a hollowed-out shell and a blackened staircase within. The neighborhood kids had all watched it burn from the roofs and fire escapes where they had dragged their mattresses on that first truly hot day in June. Now, from a block away, Francis could hear them begging the firemen to leave just one hydrant open. He could imagine them hopping back and forth as the pavement grew hot again under their feet. He looked at his watch and back at the station house door and wondered where Stanhope could be. 88 degrees already and not even 10 o'clock in the morning. This was the great shock of America. Winters that would cut the face off a person. Summers that were as thick and soggy as bogs. You whine like a narrowback, his Uncle Patsy had said to him that morning. The heat, the heat, the heat. But Patsy pulled pints inside a cool pub all day. Francis would be walking a beat, dark rings under his arms within 15 minutes. Where's Stanhope? Francis asked a pair of fellow rookies also heading out for patrol. Trouble with his locker, I think, one said back. Finally, after another whole minute ticked by, Brian Stanhope came bounding down the station house steps. He and Francis had met on the first day of Academy, and it was by chance that they'd both ended up at the 4-1. In Academy, they'd been in a tactics class together, and after a week or so, Stanhope approached Francis as they were filing out the classroom door. You're Irish, right? Off the boat Irish, I mean. Francis said he was from the West, from Galway, and he'd taken a plane, but he didn't say that part. I thought so. 
So is my girlfriend. She's from Dublin. So let me ask you something. To Francis, Dublin felt as far from Galway as New York did, but to a Yankee supposed it was all the same. Francis braced for something more personal than he wanted to be asked. It was one of the first things he'd noticed about America, that everyone felt at ease asking each other any question that came into their minds. Where do you live? Who do you live with? What's your rent? What did you do last weekend? To Francis, who felt embarrassed lining up his groceries on the checkout belt of the Associated in Bay Ridge, it was all a little too much. Big night, the checkout clerk had commented last time he was there. A six-pack of Budweiser, a pair of potatoes, deodorant. Brian said that he'd noticed his girl didn't hang around with any other Irish. She was only 18. You'd think she would have come over with a friend or a cousin or something, but she'd come alone. It seemed to him she could have at least found a bunch of Irish girls to live with. God knew they were all over the place. She was a nurse in training at Montefiore and lived in hospital housing with a colored girl, also a nurse. Was that the way it was for the Irish? Because he dated a Russian girl for a while, and the only people she hung around with were other Russians. I'm Irish too, Stanhope said, but backaways. That's another thing about America. Everyone was Irish, but backaways. Might be a sign of intelligence keeping away from our lot, Francis said with a straight face. It took Stanhope a minute. Oh, that's wonderful. That's lovely. For those of you who haven't read Ask Again, yes, you're in for a big, big treat. Mary Beth Keene, thanks so much for being on The Literary Life. Thank you for having me. This was fun. 